like we could start every Sunday that way, just reminding that come and see what your God has done. It's really what we want to do every Sunday, is remind ourselves, remind those who hear, and then go out and remind others of what the Lord has done. Well, Merry Christmas. It is a joy to be together. I know we have several traveling with families, and we love having the families that have traveled here to join us this morning, so welcome. There is, it would seem, mass confusion and maybe even a little bit of a schizophrenic spirit over much of our Western culture around Christmas time. The Christian season is much of the Western world is really, if you are to step back, a bizarre and confusing event. I would imagine that if we were visited by aliens from outer space, I'm not saying they exist, they wouldn't know what to make of the Christmas season. And it really doesn't even take an extraterrestrial visit to confirm this. A while back, I heard the story of a shop owner in a developing country that had not historically celebrated Christmas time. And the shop owner was trying to appeal to Westerners and wanted to look Western around Christmas time. So naturally, they had in their window a display of a large rabbit dressed up as Santa Claus, surrounded by Christmas trees with Easter eggs underneath. In an even more confused attempt to find the meaning of Christmas, and another story I heard, a shop owner, again, trying to appeal to Westerners and trying to make sense of the Christmas season, put together a display of Santa Claus crucified on a cross, thinking this somehow conveyed the meaning of Christmas. And these may sound a little ridiculous to our ears, these interpretations of Christmas, but can you really blame them? Really, what does the North Pole have to do with Bethlehem? What do reindeer have to do with shepherds in a field? What does Frosty the Snowman and his magical hat have to do with the visit of the Magi? And Southerners sending each other Christmas cards with snow on them? What type of deception is this? How would someone even begin to make sense of all this symbolism? But I don't think it's just the unchurched or the irreligious culture that is somewhat confused. How many Christians would even recognize the original Christmas story if they were dropped into the scene of Herod's soldiers slaughtering every boy they could find under two years of age? How many of us would even recognize the young mother and father fleeing to Egypt with their child? The cacophony of ideas and contrasting images of Christmas plead with us to answer the question, what is the real meaning of Christmas? More specifically, what must we know and understand in order to appreciate the story of a babe lying in a manger on what would have otherwise been an ordinary night in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago? If you've grown up in church, you're likely familiar with the Christmas story from Luke 2. You probably know the story of the angels appearing in the visit of the Magi from Matthew. And while each of these record important details of this Christmas story, of fulfillment of prophecy, of anticipation of the hope of heaven that was lying in a manger, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me and listen to the Christmas story that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8.
Listen with me to the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Pray with me. Father, we do rejoice this time of year. We rejoice in the celebration of a Savior that was born, a Savior for the whole world. Father, help us to delight in that. Help us to think anew upon that this morning. Help us to remind ourselves of the truths and the meaning and what is truly encapsulated in this Christmas time for us as believers, for those of us who have hope in you, help us to proclaim this meaning, the richness of it to a world that so desperately needs to hear it, so desperately needs the confusion to be wiped away, who need to learn anew the meaning of Christmas. Amen. The message of Christmas, at least the Christmas we celebrate as Christians, is articulated clearly and succinctly in those few words from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want to be able to express with clarity and real hope the meaning of Christmas, then together we must learn and meditate upon three truths. These three truths answer the questions, who, what, and why. And if we can answer them this morning, we will be able to clear away the confusion of Christmas time. So who, who was Jesus? Well, the text tells us he was rich. Rich beyond measure. We cannot understand anything about the child born in Bethlehem if we do not realize how rich he was before that day. Riches or wealth is often measured by one's possessions, what they own. It's not the only way we measure wealth, but it's certainly the most common. Speaking poetically of his possessions, the psalmist writes in Psalm 95, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. In another place, the psalmist speaks of his wealth and riches in this way. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. Everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. My children love to count the number of pets they own. When we had an ant farm, the number was quite high. And yet Christ's ownership of animals and livestock exceeds that of Solomon who brought monkeys and peacocks and all sorts of animals from afar whose wealth was marveled at by kings and rulers of the world. If wealth is measured by property, Christ's wealth exceeded that of Alexander the Great whose empire stretched from India to Europe. It exceeds that of any ruler before or since. By any measure of comparison, his possessions far exceeded that of any person who ever has 
or ever will live. Further still, his possessions are not confined to this world. In Genesis 14, we read that he possesses heaven above and the earth below. But it's not only possessions that make up one's wealth. Wealth and riches are also measured by status and by power. By that standard, there is no equal. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows them away and they wither. The storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might. The strength of his power, not one of them is missing. He is rich beyond all imagination. His wealth exceeds all imagination. But if we cannot understand his riches, if we cannot remember his power and his wealth, we cannot understand his grace. We must understand his riches. We must understand who this king is, this babe born in a manger. We must understand how rich he was, how powerful he was, how divine he was, his ultimate sovereignty. He is immeasurably rich and divine and sovereign. But now what? What is it that he did? You see, the miracle of Christmas is in what he did. According to our text, he became poor. Poverty is a, relatively, is a relative thing, really. It's often measured by how good things have been for you, or how good you think they could be, or by comparing yourself to those around you, or those you might read about or hear about. Part of the reason it's so important that we understand first how rich he was. So that we might understand the extent of his humiliation, of his poverty. How great and how far he lowered himself to become flesh, to become man. He was born homeless in a feeding trough, wrapped in pieces of cloth. Not in silk or fine linen as a king should be, but with cloths with animals for an audience. Those famous words from Isaiah 53 were realized from the moment of his birth. Despised. Forsaken. But even without a comparison to the wealth he set aside, this baby in Bethlehem was poor by any common standard of measure. He had no possessions. He was not born in a palace. His earthly parents were far from wealthy. His earthly father was a construction day laborer who picked up whatever work he could on building projects. 
Much of his early life was spent as a refugee in Egypt. Jesus' adult life was just as poor. He says in Matthew 8, 20, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But even more than all of that, he gave himself over to a hideous, odious, terrible, unjust death on the cross, killed like a common criminal. The fulfillment of all the words of the Lord spoken through Isaiah came to pass. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. As John wrote in his gospel, the world did not recognize its creator and instead rejected him. He was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Spirit through Paul elaborates upon the descent from riches to rags, from provenance to poverty, from sovereign to servant by saying in Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, with all wealth, power, riches, and majesty, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You cannot understand anything of the grace of God if you do not understand or begin to understand the extent to which Christ became poor. By any measure, whether it's compared to what he had before or if it's just compared to the lack of bare necessities in this life or the giving up of his life, he was poor. Christmas has grown to what it is in our culture because it was originally linked to what happened 2,000 years ago. The more culture rejects the message of a poor Savior born in Bethlehem, the more it must reinvent the meaning of Christmas. We've all seen this reinvention in some way, shape, or form, haven't we? We've heard or seen discussions of what is the spirit of Christmas. All sorts of movies and shows about it. Everyone has an opinion of what the spirit of Christmas is. Maybe it's family get-togethers, feeling the warmth of family. That's the spirit of Christmas. Generosity or gift-giving, that's the spirit of Christmas. Eating and drinking, often too much, that's the spirit of Christmas. Being nice to one another and to strangers, that's the spirit of Christmas. Anything, anything at all other than pausing and reflecting and actually thinking about Jesus Christ. How he was so rich, but became so poor. Do not be content this Christmas season with fantasies and sentimentality and just being nice. Now, please be nice rather than nasty. It's okay to be nice. But if you are content with simply being nice this Christmas time, and nothing more, you cannot understand, you cannot know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've just scratched the surface on the who and the what, but we don't have all year. So the why. Why this riches to rags story? 
Without the why, it's really just an odd and confusing story about a king made a pauper. To know and experience the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must understand why this took place. Why was it that though he was rich, he became poor? Listen again to the word of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's when we see the great descent from unimaginable wealth and glory to unspeakable poverty and humiliation that it took place for our sakes, then it is that we begin to understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's then that we can begin to understand it. It's then that we begin to understand the generosity. That's what grace means. The generosity. The generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's not Christmas time that matters, really. In many ways, our culture, wittingly and unwittingly, is returning to its pagan roots. Our culture is rushing to return to some form of pagan worship this time of year. Anything that will remove Christ from Christmas. You see it in banning of Christmas greetings. You see it in the removal of any semblance of Christianity from government buildings. Or businesses. You can put up lights and garland, but if you put up a nativity or the words Christmas, they say, you've gone a step too far. But you see, it's not the Christmas holiday that matters. Not really. That's why I'm not up in arms about these things. It's what unbelievers are going to do. The reality, what matters really, is the reality of the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever happens to Christmas time in our culture, in one sense, it really doesn't matter. What does matter is that you know and that you understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and understand and know and experience the generosity of our Lord, of that babe lying in a manger. And here's the problem. At Christmas, this time of year, we have trouble being honest about our poverty. Notice it says that we might become rich. It implies there in the text that we are poor. The problem is at Christmas time, we really have trouble being honest about our poverty. I'm not talking about credit card bills that will come due in January. I'm not talking about lost jobs or homelessness. I'm talking about our real poverty. Our poverty in terms of goodness. Our poverty in terms of godliness. Our poverty before our God and our maker. We've spoken often in our study of the gospel of Matthew about those opening words to the Sermon on the Mount. It's really the, the gateway into the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how it opens. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The real meaning of Christmas, the real meaning of this time begins by recognizing our great poverty and need. Notwithstanding our Christmas pretending we are in fact paupers. We are people in desperate need. We are poor. We are sinners before a holy God. 
part of the popularity of Christmas, for many at least, is that for a little while, we manage to cover it up and forget that we're not at peace with God. And we do this by pretending. By pretending as a whole society to be better than what we really are. We pretend to be nice. We pretend that we're actually generous. We forget for a moment that we're as desperately poor and wicked as we really are. But the facade will come crashing down. Reality must set in. In this life or the next. But you see, while it's Christmas time, we have a unique opportunity. Because even though it may be something of a farce, people are more open to hearing about kindness and generosity this time of year. And so we're presented with an opportunity to hear, to think, to understand, and to realize anew the generosity of Jesus Christ. To proclaim that generosity. He came as the child born in Bethlehem to grew, and grew to be a man who did such powerful good that it has never been forgotten. No benefactor on this earth, no billionaire could ever begin to approach the good that Christ did when he came to earth. Because he laid down his life for people like us. He came that through his poverty, through his humiliation, through his suffering, and through his death, we might become rich. That you, that I, might become rich. Might be forgiven by God for our sins might become children of God, might share in the riches that are by right His. The Spirit of God declares in Romans eight seventeen, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you understand your spiritual poverty and your neediness? Have you ever recognized it? clearest evidence that you recognize your spiritual poverty and neediness is confessing your sin, confessing your great poverty, crying out for the riches and for the forgiveness and for the peace with God that comes and is offered through Jesus Christ. There's one big question I want to leave you with this Christmas. I want you to answer it before Christmas has come and gone. It's a question no one can answer for you. Children, your parents can't answer it for you. Wives and husbands, your spouse can't answer it for you. Your friends can't answer it for you. The question is this. Do you know the generosity of Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. Tomorrow you will likely give and receive many gifts. But what I want you to remember right now is that no gift will ever compare to the one given and the generosity of Jesus Christ. So give gifts generously tomorrow. Enjoy it. Receive them in thankfulness tomorrow. But let them be a continual and constant reminder of the greatest gift that has ever been given for you and for me. I can't think of a better way to enter Christmas than to become rich through the generosity of Jesus Christ, to receive the gift of his grace if you have never experienced that.
Similarly, I can think of no better way to celebrate Christmas for the Christian than to give thanks for the generosity of Jesus Christ and the riches that you now share as a fellow heir of the glory of Christ Jesus. Can you think of a better way to finish the year in this Christmas time? Is there really any gift or wealth that can compare? Let's pray. Father, we want to give thanks for the generosity that has been so wholly dispersed to us. Father, I pray that if there's any here in this room who have not shared in that generosity, who have not embraced it, Father, they would recognize their spiritual poverty, that your spirit would convict them. They would confess their sins. They would turn to you, knowing that their only hope, their only source of salvation, their only source of lasting comfort, their only source of true peace is found through Jesus Christ. They would confess their sins. They would turn to you. They would find peace with you. Father, for those of us that have realized that peace, would we be faithful to proclaim it, be faithful to share it, to show it, to demonstrate it, to take the uniqueness of this Christmas time while hearts and ears may be more open to hearing stories of generosity, to share the greatest story of generosity the world has ever known, the greatest story of goodness that the world has ever known. Help us to be faithful in those things. In your name, amen. Let's stand as we sing silent.